Hi, this is Jeremy McCain, and you're listening to Ridge to Reef, the podcast version. Now, today, we have a special guest. I feel like I say that every week. It's going to get old. But Marcus Ryman from TBA21 is actually with us in the house, and, well, in the clubhouse. And we we basically are here going to talk about the intersection of art and conservation. And so, without further ado, let's do this. You're listening to Ridge to Reef. Okay, um, I want to warmly welcome everyone here to the Ultramarine Ocean Impact Club. Now, this is a place where we talk about the ocean as our life support system here on what Buckminster Fuller would call Spaceship Earth. Now, today with me, I have my friend and the director of TBA 21 Academy, Marcus Ryman. Now, Marcus has been with TBA since 2011, and before that, he was an actor. He's performed live, and he's no stranger to the performing arts. Today, he combines science, art, activism and education around ocean impact and i am so very excited to share him with you all marcus welcome to the club thank you very much jeremy that's so that's uh, what a nice introduction that is well you're a nice guy i think you deserve a nice introduction (laughs) um you, you know um i've known you now for a little bit and you know if i were to pinpoint something that i feel like you have a superpower. Like we always talk about these superpowers. In fact, you were the one that actually helped me kind of think about this phrase where I always say that, you know, there's no Superman of the oceans. That's what you would say. And I, and I kind of followed that up and said, no, but there's a justice league and each one of us can play a part. That was the two of us kind of riffing on each other. Yeah. And if I think about your superpower, it would be like your ability to recognize that certain practitioners in common spaces that we see every day have a story perspective as it relates to the ocean. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about the types of groups, artists, architects, um, maybe scientists that you've worked with and collaborated with them in the past? Mm. Uh, well, uh, sure. Um, I think, as you said, right, I came, I came to the arts as, uh, you know, kind of through, through acting, uh, through the theater, uh, and then uh, through the performing arts, working with uh, a Lebanese American artist called Walid Rod, who um, does these amazing, amazing works that are kind of sculptures, but then he uses them as sets and he activates them through kind of narrative performance. And with that, right, with, uh, with this uh, incredibly kind of smart way of folding uh, information into situation and then in front of the backdrop of of um, complex really uh, uh, conditions right that was that was kind of the the moment where I where I realized that there's so much more than um, that art uh, could do so much more than uh, what was able to do in the theater right and and um, uh, by then entering into TBA 21 and TBA 21, was at the time already ten years old. They've they've built this phenomenal collection and also a fantastic reputation in commissioning artworks. Right, they they would do these really complex and enable artists to do these really complex um, works, and um, and they had created really a reputation and and, uh, and integrity and authenticity authenticity. So when we started thinking about the academy and the oceans 
there was this incredible pool of artists that we could already draw from, right? And um, in the beginning, we uh, we invited the first two artists that we invited to come on this journey were two sound artists. Uh, so that was Chris Watson, and Chris Watson used to be in a band called Cabaret Voltaire, right? And then he kind of got into uh, field recordings and all of a sudden the sound of the city sounded so much more important or so much more interesting to him than being in the studio and making music. And then uh, he he went from these uh, field recordings into field recordings for TV and then he started working with Edinburgh and he made these incredible nature documentaries and he was, uh, he was working on the sound component of that. Um, but through working on these nature documentaries, he was like in super close contacts with all of these scientists. And so he developed this language where he could easily switch back and forth between uh, science and art and art and science and production and technology and then these super complex setup of, of a playback system. And the other artist was Jana Winderen. And Jana Winderen is a, is a Norwegian artist who, um, who works exclu exclusively with uh, with nature and then she kind of mutates the sounds of bats and coral reefs and this and that and the other into these amazing compositions that she does and again uh, into and with these super uh, super complex um, and elaborate playback systems and she comes from a from a background um, as a marine biologist right and so uh, I think the I think the the kind of the defining component or, or kind of the red thread to all of the people that we work with um, is that they are very comfortable in uh, two or more spheres, right? Art and, uh, or uh, architecture and, and so they've, they've become, um, I would say specialists in communication and translation, right? They, they, they really are able to, to uh, navigate different vocabularies and navigate different spheres, right? Uh, talk from anything from, uh, you know, fishermen's meetings or the crew on a boat to then uh, super high level uh, policy or uh, scientific crowds. And I think that that's it. It's really, it's, um, it's I guess the, 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 the talent is to, to be able to talk to a wide variety of audiences and people, I think that's that's really what it is. It's a it's a it's a talent in communication. Yeah, and I think you know it, it, that's really so beautiful because you know I was kind of opened up to this years before. I had been uh, I had got asked by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to join one of their vessels um, in the humpback whale uh, marine sanctuary in Maui and. I mean, I was just going to say yes, just to say yes, because I was like, this would be amazing. Um, but, you know, they realized uh, then that, you know, whenever the scientists will work in the field, uh, that, you know, not too many people really pay much mind to it. In fact, even if they're writing a paper, I think the average is somewhere like six or ten, you know, uh, people will see it. Don't quote me on that. The point is, it's extremely low. And um, you, they wanted me to come as an artist to... Um, really kind of accentuate the work of, that they were doing in that space. And so I think you just kind of really ha have taken this to a whole nother level, which I think is is really beautiful. And, and you and I met um, in 2015 at COP21 mm. 
and and for those of you who don't know, COP stands for the Conference of Parties. Um, it has been dubbed the Paris Agreement, so you, you probably have heard a lot about that. It was actually mentioned last night, um, as it should be. Um, but you and I met then in Paris, which um, and you were working on then something called the Current. And can you explain yes. to us this project, the Current? Uh, you know why it was started um, and and why you felt the world needed this. Well, I think I think the question was first. Um, we maybe we needed it. I, I'm not sure, but. Um, as you said, we were just about to launch the current. No, we had just launched the current. Uh, this, I think it the, was this, you this, announced it then at the. We, at, we announced yeah. it, but we had we had just done the first cruise, right? So, um, like I said, we started the project in 2011, right? And and we we were able. And it's funny because Phil Holding is here, and he's been on the on the boat that I'm going to talk about. Um, I was, yeah, you. we were together. Yeah. What up, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 2011, we started this project and we were able to to invite artists and scientists and environmentalists, indigenous uh, groups and leaderships and, and legal experts together to come on a boat. And the boat is a 39 meter, which is a hundred and I don't know, 154 foot or something like that. Um, explorer vessel called the Dardanella. And um, in the beginning, this was uh, literally uh, um, a way for us to break with um, a rhythm and a format that the, that the foundation had established before that, right? Which was uh, commissioning and producing works and exhibiting and doing this uh, three or four times a year in the exhibition space that the foundation was programming at the time, which was in Vienna. And, and we kind of got into this, you know, in this hamster wheel and just... Uh, producing, exhibiting, producing, exhibiting, producing, exhibiting, and so on. And the question was then, can we break this format and can we really focus on, uh, on a process? Um, we wanted to start a project that was focused on the environment and the organization was incredibly interested in, in change, right? In the cause and effect of change. And so the proposal was, can we actually allow ourselves to think with and from a system that is constantly changing, constantly moving, constantly in flux, right? And so this is why we, we chose the ocean. And we did this for a number of years that we invited artists and scientists to come together for these intense moments, two weeks together on a boat, uh, rather, rather unusual situations, close quarters, you share breakfast, lunch, lunch and dinner, there's no place to escape, right? And so this... Uh, you, we would really take people outside of their comfort zones in many, many, many ways and, uh, and spend this time together. And when you spend this much time this close together, kind of thought continuously and tra uh, ideas continuously travel, right? So uh, a thought gets brought up uh, during, before, after dinner, and, and it just continues to travel through these bodies and through these people that are with you on the boat. And um, um, but it was it was really project by project, um, very loosely uh, connected in in terms of program. And at some point, and it was uh, around 2014, um, I thought uh, it's time to kind of give it a, a, a more you know a more programmatic, a, a different kind of format. And so we came up with the current, and the current really was 
to say, okay, we invite a guest curator to become the leader of the current for three years. And the invitation was to go on uh, one cruise a year, on one voyage a year, and to invite five people from different disciplines and engage with the places and the communities that they would visit under certain curatorial aspects that we agreed upon beforehand in the first cycle was really looking at uh, ancestral practices, indigenous practices, and how they have a reincarnation in uh, in modern day conservation. So we, first we were looking at the Rahui, we were looking at, um, at the Kula Ring, at a gifting economy, and later at the taboo as a, as a kind of um, uh, ancestral, um, temporary, marine protected area, right? And, uh, and we were looking at these practices, how they're being, uh, having new in incarnations now in modern day uh, conservation. But instead of then uh, working on exhibitions, we would, within six months after these um, expeditions, we would ask the, uh, the participants to stage a two to three day performative conference. So it was a festival of ideas, right? And, um, and we would take these festivals and these uh, conferences to places that would usually not see these conservation uh, um, kind of conferences, right? So the first one was in Jamaica. The first cruise went to Papua New Guinea. The first conference was in Jamaica. Phil was an integral part of uh, the whole thing. Um, then uh, the second cruise went to um, the Tuamotus in French Polynesia. We were looking, besides looking at the, uh, the Rahui, which is a, a, a conservation um, uh, um, plan, an ancestral conservation plan that was based on the lunar calendar. We were also looking at kind of the, the effects of the nuclear testing in, uh, in French Polynesia. And, um, and uh, that uh, conference was in India. And then the last one was uh, to Fiji, to the Lao Islands, where you then later joined us as well, Jeremy. And the last conference was in Singapore. So it was really, um, it was really giving, um, giving time to a number of people, right? It was bringing in uh, different practitioners and so expanding the network and building the network um, and and taking away the pressure of immediately immediately having to produce objects or works after having this immensely intense uh, impression of going on a on a trip like that, right? So it was taking, I guess, all the um, uh, I guess the usual kind of mechanisms away that would that an art organization that would commission a program or a fellowship, um, you know, usually implement or, or bring to artists that uh, that would enter into such a program right and just take that away and give time and give proximity to to the ocean or a deep immersion in the ocean and bring together a, a group of people that are loosely connected by thought um, that come from different disciplines and just facilitate a, an ongoing conversation and then open this up to um, to a public that uh, would usually not, or not usually get this kind of um, this kind of conference, right? And so, so again, what the 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 thing that happened was really that everybody needed to constantly be in conversation with each other and translate what they're doing from uh, from super specialist to uh, to complete novice of this, right? And this is what happened. This is what the current has become. So now we're. We finished the second cycle. 
we're going into the third cycle uh, next year. We're, we're, we're changing the format. So we're, we're not using the boat anymore, which is sad on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was like really, uh, really questionable, right? Uh, to have such a mega carbon footprint uh, and, and importing and exporting people and ideas and impressions all the time. And so uh, we're changing the format to uh, three field knowns, field stations, uh, starting next year with the Mediterranean and then looking at the Caribbean the next year and then looking at the Pacific the year after um, and starting to create programming in the places that we're actually operating in. Yeah, I mean, you know, I hear what you say about, um, you know, bringing people, you know, kind of out of their comfort zone, uh, yeah. you know, and spending breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, but I will have to say, having been on the Dardanella, mm -hmm. um, it's quite comfortable. It's super comfortable. Yeah. It's super so, comfortable. I mean, that's the, that's the special thing I think about the boat. It's really it feels um, it feels like a like a home floating floating on the ocean. I, I, I definitely felt like I was at home uh, and, and I was surrounded by this unbelievable, um, pristine beauty. And I, and I still look back at that moment with fondness. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'm just going to cut here just for just a second. And, and, and just, we've got, obviously for those of you that are listening on Spotify and uh, Apple music, this is a, a live podcast. Um, and, uh, for those of you who have any questions, I'm happy to bring you up here on the stage one by one. Um, this is, uh, very similar how we do things in Hawaii. We talk story and, and uh, I believe in interruptions. So if you would like to come up, um, you know, any time is fine. But um, what I was going to say is that we were going through the Lao group and, you know, yeah. we would go to, I think the first place we went to was Fulanga. And, you know, there really wasn't a lot of visitors, I guess you could say over the years. And so when we got there, it was just like such an amazing welcome. I felt like I had opened up a National Geographic and just had dove right in. And um, the food was amazing. The people were amazing. And the children, like the second that our little dinghy arrived on shore, it was like, Bula, Bula. It was just, it was such a special moment. And it's something that I'm so grateful to both you and Francesca for inviting me because it's something that I think ultimately really changed the narrative on, on how I communicate, just not as a human being, but also through art. So um, I think it's a very special and I, and I can actually see firsthand, you know, the impact that this can have on, on artists as they kind of leave and they go back to their, their, pra their practitioner. And, you know, um, when, when we first met in 2015 or maybe 2016, we, we probably talked about it more. Um, I became very fascinated with this concept that you guys did. It was called, um, it was called the, it was the, oh, actually, I'm going to mess this up, but it was, it was related to the treasure of Lima. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that project? Well, the treasure of Lima was, um, I guess it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, the treasure of Lima, uh, was our first exhibition that we did as, uh, as the Academy. And uh, it was an exhibition that was seen by exactly, I think, uh, I think six people. And, um, and it was an exhibition that was then buried on the remote island of Cocos Island, which is uh, 250 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, uh, and is the archetype of all treasure islands, uh, supposedly, because supposedly the treasure of Lima is buried there. And the treasure of Lima is the biggest pirate loot in the history of pirate loots. And um, because it's supposedly there, uh, everybody 
who could went to Cocos Island to try to find it. So uh, it is the only place on this planet, as far as I know, where treasure hunting is illegal. And that was declared in 1984. And in 1997, Cocos Island becomes a World Heritage Site, not because of the fantastic island, and the, which now has uh, so many holes in it, because everybody was looking for this treasure, but because um, it is the largest congregation of hammerhead sharks on this planet, scalloped hammerhead sharks. Um, and that is the case because it rises from 400 uh, 4,000 meters below sea level to 800 meters above. So it's the only island in the Eastern Pacific that has its own weather system. And because it rises from so deep in the ocean and sits in the middle of the Humboldt current, you have all of these upwellings coming up and uh, all of these nutrients welling up there. And therefore, you have a lot of fish and we have a lot of fish. Uh, you, have, you, you have in a healthy ecosystem, a lot of sharks. And um, so in 1997, this, also, this gets declared a World Heritage Site. And with the World Heritage Site declaration uh, comes a 12-mile no-take zone. And because there is a 12-mile no-take zone, the, um, the Costa Rican government decides to um, put a ranger station on the island. And with this ranger station comes one boat. And this boat is supposed to protect this 12 mile no take zone, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? So um, every night on this 12 mile parameter, you have, uh, I don't know how many illegal fishing boats with long lines pulling out hundreds of sharks every night, um, which get finned and then the fins get shipped out of two private ports. Um, so with all of this information and knowing that we would come past Costa Rica, we thought, uh, how can we engage with that? And we were at the time working with a young curator called Nadim Zaman, and he came up with this concept of uh, the Treasure of Lima Buried Exhibition. So we asked um, 40 artists that we had worked with, and this was like uh, for LA, it was Ed Brochet and, and Doug Aitken and Olaf Oliosson and Marina Abramovitz and, and uh, Lawrence Wiener and others to give us unique pieces um, and and uh, we would put them into a treasure chest, which was designed by the architecture and design team Miranda Lash. And uh, then we took that out to the island and buried it. So we, uh, before we went, we, we asked the Costa Rican uh, authorities if it was uh, possible to bring another tre uh, treasure out there. And uh, so they were a little bit confused in the beginning why we would do that and um but but they couldn't find anything to to keep us from doing it so we found this place where we wanted to bury it we took it up there uh, which was where we had to scale i think two or three waterfalls and, and carried this thing up there which was absolutely crazy and took hours and uh and um then we took the gps coordinates because every good treasure needs a map right and we brought these coordinates back uh, we gave it to a Dutch artist called Dun uh, Constant Dollard, and he turned um, the the twelve figures of longitude latitude into an eight thousand six hundred figure code, and then three D printed it onto a steel scroll. Right, and so now we had a treasure buried on this island, and we had a treasure map, which we then took together with another um, sculptural element, which was another chest that looked very much like the chest that we buried. We took that to um, to auction in New York with Philips Auction House, and we sold it off. And um, with the money that we raised, we 
uh, we financed, we designed and financed a research and conservation project for the pelagic species around that island, right? And so it was the first time that uh, every day of the year there was a scientist in the water. We were able to tag, I think, 26 sharks, four different species. We could actually track the migration and, and build evidence for kind of a migrational pattern um, between Cocos, Galapagos, uh, and other places, uh, which was, so it was like going, I think between three or four countries. And, um, and that was huge for, for, uh, for science, right? And uh, so this was a mega elaborate project that lasted over years. It was just concluded last year. And there's new papers coming out about it all the time. And, um, and yeah, it was very, very, very exciting. I think that's probably the coolest thing ever because I think, you know, it's, you know, it, it has this connection to the oceans through the art world where probably that would not have existed otherwise had you not done this. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about this is that even if you wanted to go back and retrieve this thing, it's, it's illegal, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly the thing, right? It's like, so it went to auction no one really knows if the thing is really there, right? I mean, this is uh, this could also just be a story that we came up with, and uh, we we sold this uh, these two objects with it on on the back of the story. It is there, um, but uh, on the other hand, right now the question for the owner is who is a collector, right? It's like, what does it mean to own this map? Do I need to um, uh, uh, do I need to own more do i need to own all the objects because that's you know it's a it's a it's an entire collection of contemporary art in that whole in that uh, one chest right so you officially you're the owner of these all of these pieces but you can't get them if he's actually able to crack the code he could go and get them but then he's uh, he's breaking the law and if he still absolutely has to go to own these pieces and he's actually manages to uh, to retrieve them then the costa rican government has failed all of us because this is a common heritage uh, because this is a world heritage site so they are uh, they're in charge of protecting this this island so it has so many layers right that that touch upon so many things and um and that was really the joy of it now i think this is you know it's is one of my favorite stories that that you guys have done and you've done some other really amazing things but i just think like you know there's, I guess there's the little boy pirate in me that says, you know, mm. uh, I want to go hunting for a treasure, yeah. and, you know, and, and, and you're the only guy that I know that knows where a treasure is. And to me, that's just so super exciting. Um, we uh, I've got a couple other questions. And I also want to um, make notice that all right, my co-founder of uh, Ultramarine uh, Ocean Action Summit is here, Susie Mai. Welcome, Susie. Hi everyone. Hi Marcus. Thank you so much for being on Clubhouse and hanging out with us this morning. It's morning Hi, for me, Susie. not for everyone. This is such a cool story. I didn't know about this because, you know, some stuff gets lost, but this is, I mean, being an island person from the Caribbean, this is mm. also totally up my alley. And I wonder if we could do a cool installation like this for Ultramarine on Necker, maybe hide something and not tell anyone about it till after. I think, I think I think that's that. a I think that's a great idea. Well, um, in in, tr in true fashion, as I said earlier, that um, I'm the b big believer in, in interruptions, and if you have questions, please come up. Uh, I've invited uh, Brian Harris up to the stage. Brian, you you have the floor. What's your question? 
Thank you. Uh, thanks for organizing this, Jeremy. And nice to hear that story, Marcus. It's, <laughs> it's pretty exceptional. Um, I feel like in a way you've sort of hacked the art world and I'm, I'm trying to understand if um, the person who purchased the, the replica art piece would have otherwise been interested, engaged, helped finance uh, the research, which was sort of the end outcome of, uh, of, of the story. Um, and, and if you see this as a way of engaging people who maybe otherwise would not be interested or put uh, financing behind this sort of initiative. Um, thanks, Brian. I think this is, this is a very good question. I don't think uh, that um, that he uh, would have otherwise uh, been interested in financing this. Right? He's a he comes from precision engineering and and telecommunications. So somehow this this I think this uh, this idea of cracking the code and and having this three D printed steel, steel scroll. Um, was was somehow intriguing to him, but cracking the code and 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 actually figuring out where this uh, treasure is, I think that was really uh, what got him intrigued. And then clearly also the names of the artists that are in the in the treasure, right? Um, was the other thing. I don't think at the end of the day that uh, that he was in any way interested in uh, marine conservation, marine science, the sharks, or anything else, right? So. Um, I think that that is a way in, right? And I think that is a way of of um, of financing um, science, finding financing conservation, and it's something that is um, that is done quite regularly, right? We we have these kind of charity auctions for all kinds of causes um, quite regularly, and uh, it's not necessarily about the cause, but uh, the the objects that you can purchase during these auctions. Um, on the other hand. I think, um, you know, we need to, this is, a, it's a good way to get people in, but then we need to go um, beyond, right? It's like, it's a question, how do we uh, continue engaging them? How, how can we actually build on that initial interest in this initial engagement uh, to, to, um, to build a further um, community? But, you know, I think, I think that's really about what, what we need to try to achieve a lot more than this initial one-time interest and one-time engagement, but how can we continue the conversation? How can we actually continue building on this first-time engagement and, and um, build something lasting? Because that's really when you start um, uh, having, having a further impact, right? Thank you, Brian, for, for coming up and asking your question. Um, Marcus, I was going to ask you, you know, from the time that we had a chat in 2015, um, about you know your launch of the current and all the things that you've done since, do you think as a global collective we have maybe a better understanding of the ocean that say was maybe different in twenty fifteen? Um, do we have a what was the question? Better understanding, different yeah, understanding. Yeah, more different, not necessarily better, because that's obviously subjective. But do you think our our understanding is different? Because I feel like more people are talking about the oceans these days than maybe. Than our initial conversations in 2015. Yeah, I think definitely. I think the the focus has shifted uh, dramatically, right, towards uh, towards the ocean. The attention has shifted dramatically. I'm not, um, and and I guess more information, more data is is always helpful. Um, 
I think we need to do things radically differently, right? I think uh, to doing, to do, continue doing more in the same fashion as we always have is not gonna is not gonna change the um, the course of things dramatically, right? So I think um, uh, yes, we know more. Um, are we doing better? I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah, I'm just curious. No, what you do know, you think, Jackie? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I think there's definitely some some more conversations, and I think you know there are more people that have kind of come to the table, and and I've you know talking to people that that maybe are, are brands or even artists uh, from you know musical artists or whatever. It seems like there's just a, a more of a of an awareness, which I think is great. Um, I think it's 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 great for us to have kind of a better understanding, and I just can't help but wonder if if maybe that has a lot to do with some of the work that you've done. Um, alongside with others, because, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I want to say like when we were at the Paris agreement, the oceans were very, a very tiny element of the conversations. And, and this last, uh, cop and 20, uh, cop 25 in Madrid was actually, they dubbed it the blue cop. So, I mean, I feel like it's different, but I just was curious about from your perspective. I know, but look, I, I think the, the, it's like, still we have, um, an ocean uh, conversation and we have a climate conversation, right? Uh, that that uh, the ocean is the biggest driver of climate is somehow uh, not considered. So this should be one conversation and not two conversations, right? And um, and I think this is this is something that we're seeing more and more the intersectionality of things, the 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 relation between um, climate justice, social justice. Right, um, all of these kinds of things. I think uh, the, these are these are conversations that need to come together and not uh, and and uh, have to be had together and have to be looked together uh, at together, and not separately. So I think we're still having too many separate conversations, um, and and we're not seeing them as as part of you know a really a, a really systemic change that that needs to be addressed, talked about. And and then also um, we just need to see it happen, right? Yeah, I think. no, I totally agree. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. I think things are coming out slowly, and I think things are are um, the 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 connections are being uh, at least talked about, right? Uh, I'm not sure that they're being addressed more, and and surely not in uh, in these big. Um, United Nations uh, frameworks and, and conference formats, right? Because we're still talking about the ocean in the in this in this uh, context as a carbon sink, and uh, and so so on, right? So I don't think that that we're there. Well, I guess as a follow up to that, and you know, you may not have an answer to it, but like you know, what um, what what can we do better? Do you have any ideas? Um, we can care more. And we yeah. can act more on that care, right? I think it's. I think it really. Um, I'm trying for for the program and for um, what we're doing now. I really try to integrate um, like physical acts of care, right, for the places that we that we operate in, for the places that the program is at. Um, to to get away from uh, just thinking about talking about um, uh, having discourse around right, but really to to apply ourselves to to act on, and I think this is. I believe that's what what uh, um, what 
at least we need to do. And when I say we, it's like we as an organization, it's like apply acts of care and invite people um, to contribute to these, right? And, and, um, and yeah, stop uh, thinking exclusively about it or creating art about it, right? Um, but, but actually applying ourselves to that. Mm. Yeah, no, agreed. Well, I, I wanted to kind of touch on something, you know, back in 2016, uh, again, uh, you and Francesca are always great, gracious in inviting me and uh, in, in putting things on the radar that, that I wasn't aware of. And I didn't know what IUCN was until I met you guys. Um, and in 2016, you invited me to Honolulu to come to this meeting. Um, but when you and I were both there, um, uh, you were invited um, into a kind of a private meeting with one of the, the uh, Mori leasers from, from mm. New Zealand. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that meeting and, um, you know, what kind of came out of that uh, session? Um, well, I, th I think, uh, you know, it was, it was convened by, um, by uh, a number of uh, local Hawaiians, right? Uh, um, indigenous Hawaiians that um, that were trying to, I think, in the in a kind of more more or less backroom um, conference uh, to strengthen alliances on uh, in this in this kind of uh, IOCN framework, strengthen alliances across the Pacific. And uh, what was really, really interesting, I thought, was to understand the the financial power of uh, uh, different Maori tribes and uh, the real estate holdings that came with that, and the the, the leverage that this brought with it uh, over kind of official official uh, national frameworks, right? So we were talking about. Um, rising sea levels and, and sinking atolls and um, what this would mean for the people that live on the atolls, right? And, and how one could circumnavigate the, the fact that uh, many of them will turn into climate refugees, right? And, um, and so by being these uh, and having these vast uh, holdings of land, right? Um, they had a completely different possibility to invite and become hosts of of these people that would have to leave their homes at some point, and uh, and that was really that was just fascinating to see how these traditional relationships between um, the different Polynesian uh, tribes uh, were were reactivated in the face of um, of you know, dramatic and accelerating climate change and climate crisis. And, um, and that, that was amazing to see how uh, under kind of the, or were uh, next to the IOCN, this official conservation con conference, there, were, there was a completely different conversation going on that was uh, super practical and was just making use of, uh, of alliances of traditional, um, you know, uh, relationships and, um, and, you know, was just a lot more, I think, straightforward than anything else that I, that I was witnessing uh, during that conference because it was very abstract, it was theoretical, and then it was also, you know, just bureaucratic uh, things that need to be dealt with. And if you see 
you know, as you were talking about COP last year in Madrid, you know, um, what was what was quite striking and frustrating, and I think it's it's uh, we see it again this year. Uh, last year was that there were like 500,000 people in the streets demanding change. The science uh, was really clear. They positioned themselves very clearly. They left the position of neutrality, right, and and um, and took a very clear position that. Um, you know, large, wide-reaching changes would need to be made and addressed. And then the policymakers within the conference, the COP conference, uh, couldn't come to an agreement, right? So I think that's, that's kind of the reality that we're facing. And uh, now if you look at the, the um, COVID-19 pandemic and you see how uh, nations react and have reacted uh, to that pandemic, right, uh, then you see how crisis can be addressed and the climate crisis is definitely not addressed in the same way. And I think that's a, that's a frustration. And there, um, uh, during ICN, you could see a crisis being addressed in a very pragmatic, straightforward way through ownership, through financial power and so on um, by, by reactivating just, um, you know, longstanding relationships. And that was pretty, very, very impressive, I have to say. Yeah, you know, I I um I I think that that is one of the things that really kind of strikes me as odd and I think, you know, Susie and I we we became both very frustrated with with this and this is why we we kind of wanted to do a convening somewhere and and thankfully to Susie, she was like, you know, well, what if we had just a group of people come together that wanted to focus on action and doing the work and that could execute versus just talk about it. And, and that's really mm -hmm. how it came to be, you know, us meeting on Necker Island and, and a big shout out to Sir Richard Branson for, for believing in this, this idea. But, um, you, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated with our, our past. And I think ancient Polynesians would often, you know, kind of refer to the key to their future was often in their past. Um, and I, I still believe that that is our, our, our way moving forward today. Um, I, you know, I, I would like to bring mention to the fact recently here on Clubhouse, I had just this amazingly lovely discussion about, you know, ancient indigenous way of life versus our present day of economic life. But some guy had popped up and said that we're better off now today with our way of life than, say, the way that they lived thousands of years ago. If you heard a comment like this, with all of your experience with yeah. indigenous leaders, how would you respond to this comment? Are, are we truly better off or, or, or is, is, I mean, it's not like who's right, who's wrong, but are we doing the right things? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's an impossible, it's an impossible question. Um, if you, you know, if you look at uh, so many parameters uh, in terms of, uh, healthcare, education, wealth, and so on—all uh, of this has changed dramatically. Right? Uh, that's that's one thing. I think the other thing, though, is um, a relationship and um, an intimate understanding of your direct environment, right? And living with that direct environment, uh, and having having um, an intuitive and uh, long-standing relationship with your environment and and the. Um, um, your natural environment, right? I think so. This is this is completely different. Uh, we and I, what one is better than the other? I would I would strongly agree with you saying that we we are 
uh, or many of us have lost the relationship um, to, to our natural environment. Uh, I think this nature culture divide is, is huge. And, uh, and therefore we don't even, we, we can't relate to this thing, which is called climate change or climate crisis, right? What does it mean? What does it even mean that we're now 1.6 uh, degrees over um, pre-industrial times, right? Um, so it is, it's, um, I think there's, there's no answer to the question, are we better off or are we not better off? But uh, what what is clear is that um, that many of us have lost um, a relationship to to our national environment, and that is part of the challenge that we're facing now. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I want to maybe again, I just there's a couple new people in the room, and uh, you know, this is a, a live podcast that we're recording, and and uh, this will be on Apple Music and uh, Spotify tomorrow, but. Um, if you do have any questions, um, we believe in the art of talking story. So you're welcome to raise your hand and ask Marcus a question. Um, uh, I want to maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of some of the stuff that you're doing uh, in the present space. Um, you know, you um, you have this speak. You have this physical space um, in Venice, Italy, called the Ocean Space, and I find it a bit ironic that you have this place for convening in a city that's constantly flooding due to rising seas. Why would you want to have this space and, and, and why Venice? Well, I think exactly for that reason, right? Um, I think to, uh, to have a space in, in any other uh, contemporary art um, venue, right? It could have been Berlin, it could have been London, it could have been whatever, New York, Paris, wherever, right? Um, it would have made sense as well because you have a contemporary art audience and so on. But uh, I think this is really about imagining new ways and imagining uh, a different future. And I think I would like to uh, use and imagine uh, and think of Venice as a laboratory for the future instead of a, a monument to the past, right? There is clearly a monument of to, to ingenuity and beauty and, and trade and exchange and, and all of that. But it is uh, for at least for for Europe and for rising sea levels. It's also one of the front lines of of uh, climate change and climate crisis, right? And and therefore, I find an extremely um, powerful place to think about a different engagement with the environment, with the future. It it lives. Venice lives uh, in this very intimate and, and uh, intricate relationship to the lagoon and uh, the salt marshes and um you know so so and there is this really uh, long-standing maritime history there's a long-standing engagement with art and contemporary art and it's one of the very few places that uh, has so many pressures um that it has to deal with uh, at at the same time right uh, over tourism, it has uh, the the crazy cruise ships, it has uh, the the rising sea levels and all of that, and at the same time, it has a it has a history of questioning itself and the world around it through um, through the arts, right? Since the biennial is there since uh, over a hundred years, and uh, and it has this this practice in in questioning itself and imagining the world constantly through and with 
the eyes and with uh, the skills of artists. So it's a it's a very very unique place, um, and somehow um, many people only think about protecting it and not necessarily thinking of this uh, all of these pressures as an engine to to imagine different ways forward. And um, yeah, and for for all of these reasons, it made so much sense to be in Venice, to think about ocean space in Venice, and uh, to think about uh, how we can, A, bring all of these things together there, uh, engage with the local community, but also the international community. Uh, Venice is, um, well, in terms of uh, um, not pandemic, right? It's uh, visited by 31 million people uh, every year, which is, which is an absurd number because I think in Venice there are currently 45,000 inhabitants, right? So it's this, it's this village that is, is uh, overrun constantly. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's for all of these reasons. Uh, and we were extremely lucky to, to, to be able to get our hands on this uh, fantastic building, which is a former church. It's called the Chiesa di San Lorenzo. It's one of five churches in all of Italy that has a double-sided altar. So it has this beautiful floor plan of two nearly um, same spaces. It's like these two shoebox spaces, but they're 400 square meters each. And then in the middle, it has this double-sided altar. And then it has 26 meter high ceilings. So it has these uh, really amazing dimensions. It's a breathtaking space. Uh, it has um, it has a crazy history to it because uh, Marco Polo's parents lived right next door to it, and supposedly they had um, they had uh, reserved three places in the crypt. So for the longest time, um, the city of Venice was hoping to find the remains of Marco Polo in the church. Uh, one of the uh, superintendenzas, which is the person that takes care of the the kind of cultural and architectural heritage of the city was an archeologist and she was hoping to find Marco Polo there. So she dug uh, two ginormous holes uh, into the church. Um, she didn't find Marco Polo, never found Marco Polo, but she found the remains of two Byzantine churches underneath. So um, it, it was this crazy excavation site and the water was uh, rising in the church for I think nearly 25 years. So it was like rotting away when, when we found it and then uh, we were able to make this uh, um, very, very good deal to to use the church for the next nine years. And, that, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I, it's what's interesting about it is that, you know, you can do these contemporary art installations about the ocean. And generally speaking, like when you go to a museum where you have these these external type of uh, installations about the ocean, you you, you kind of experience it you're immersed and then boom you're you're back into a city or you're back into mm. kind of like your normal life uh if that's what you call it um but in this scenario um especially with the floods that had occurred uh you know in, in years past it's like you're going you're talking about the oceans how delicate they are and in this in this conceptual multidisciplinary way and then when you leave the ocean space like you're still mm. surrounded by the threats that yeah. uh, that you're faced with, and and so I, I think it's I think it's such a, a great concept, and you know uh, you, you've been you've been part of TBA since 2011. We already said that, and and mm. um, 
you know, you started the current, found a way to include artists as storytellers as part of, uh, you know, a way of kind of really conveying the message of why we need to protect this very delicate ecosystem. And then one of your projects now that you've, you've worked on, um, is like, I, we could go on on all these really cool projects <clears throat> that you have, but one, another one that I've, I've been part of and something that I'm, I'm excited about is, is that you call the ocean archive. It's a, yeah. it's a way to collaborate on a global scale in regards to ocean content. But can you tell us why, you know, out of, after all this time, the ocean archive exists now and, and why mm. maybe you guys or you personally, however you want to look at it, were the right ones to, to, to enact it. Well, I think um, because we came into the space from a very unusual position, right. As an art or cultural organization to enter into um, science policy uh, frameworks around the ocean and and seriously engaging with it over time, not just as a fad and starting 10 years ago, but uh, was uh, brought us into this into this very unusual position. And um, and all of a sudden you realize that um, that by by coming from it from an art angle. Right. And I would not I would I. I would strongly argue against art in this context, just being a communicator, right? I think art is also a way of, of really thinking differently, um, embodying knowledge in a different way and applying knowledge in a different way. And I think also having a, um, a very unusual convening power where people come together and all of, a all of a sudden talk with each other that otherwise wouldn't talk to each other by but by by entering into this space from that rather unusual position, you also realize, or we we were able to realize that that you know the ocean, the way that it's set up in terms of conservation and renumeration of conservation, is set up for competition, and what the ocean needs is coalition or alliances solidarity whatever but it uh, what it doesn't need is everybody competing for the same little pot of money um and then by that not being able to do what what they needed to do right and all of a sudden by by uh, bringing people together that would not necessarily sit together usually because they would have to compete to, uh, with each other on how to protect the sharks how to how to protect the corals how to do this how to do that how to do the other Right, um, but but by asking them to come together to think about an art project, to think about you know whatever, um, you you realize that uh, that there is a need for, as I said, coalition alliances and so on. And so we we what we tried to do was um, to create a digital infrastructure and is currently in its beta version that uh, would facilitate exactly that. Um, a to to find people that uh, do work on the ocean to find people that um, that um, are willing to collaborate, to find people that are willing to share the work and uh, to be able to connect to, to this work. So the way that uh, the Ocean Archive is structured is that it's structured in a non-hierarchical way. It doesn't make a difference um, between an artwork, a documentary of an artwork, a research paper, conservation work, whatever. Um, it, is, it is organized through relationships. So currently it's governed by 42 concept tags right and underneath that are keywords uh, so it's it's organized and it organizes itself through relationships uh, and not through a structure and a hierarchy 
and um, and yeah, it's it's meant for people to find, uh, to connect, to collaborate, uh, and then build a kind of pipeline between information, inspiration, and action. And I think that's the that's the important thing. We we know we have the information, right? Most people really know what's going on, uh, and somehow we still don't find it in ourselves to act upon what we know. And it's really about bridging this information action gap that uh, that we see so that's yeah that's what we're trying to do yeah that, i think that's that's amazing because then that even further opens up the capability for for collaborations and um i we have we have a couple folks that want to come up and ask some questions and i also want to just throw this out there that um you're about to find this out marcus if you don't know already but mm -hmm. uh today is the 8th of october which makes this inter international octopus tober day uh, no. i think you know about this yeah, yeah, yeah. You've heard, heard of this. about it today. Oh well, which is amazing. you're in for a real treat because the founder of October uh, Octopus Tober is is in the room, so we'll we'll have her next. But 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 uh, very quickly on the stage we have with us Anita Vadavita. I think I'm saying your last name wrong. Um, please correct me. Um, and I would love to give you the floor, please. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's Vadavata, but you got it close. No worries. Um, thanks. It's a really really great conversation. Thanks, Mar uh, Marcus. A um, couple of things that I want to kind of share. Um, a few years ago, a friend of mine and I, she was actually a filmmaker, worked on some Bollywood films before. Um, and we both met in Atlanta and we started kind of exploring um, what does it mean to really understand tribes from the 21st century perspective. And we basically kind of got a small grant from Georgia State University and we decided to kind of go back to India, just spend probably like, you know, a few weeks um, on this explorative project and our intent was to really can we create a new docu-series for the mainstream audience in India because India has a lot of media content because television is a big, big part of the influence and also a medium of communication for general public. Um, and since we had the right connections and production houses too, like the networks, we thought, hey, let's kind of go explore this concept and a couple of concepts we've explored, um, of course, it didn't pan out the way we wanted it to, but one was uh, the tribes of India, um, uh, because India has the largest tribal population in the world, or the number of tribes in the world, uh, just given, of course, the population strength, but the type of tribes that exist are quite a spectrum and variety, because you have like almost like the primitive tribes to what we call the ruralized tribes, to the gypsies who are also considered tribes and classified by the government as tribes, and our intent was to really kind of go spend some time with a couple of tribes that we've chosen and really understand them. It's like we're not bringing our perspective. We're not trying to like put them in a frame of our you know, lens as a reference. We really want to see what can we learn from them. And a couple of things that really we walked away from that project where we cut into a trailer and then we presented the networks later was there is a key aspect of visible knowledge and invisible knowledge. And the association that the tribes that we spent some time with had with ecology in general, the level of understanding of micro changes that happen in ecology and for them who are technically not literate, you know, but they don't go to formal education, but their knowledge is almost like a scientific level or even beyond that 
to literally what they hold and we walked away thinking there is actually vast invisible knowledge somehow we tend to really press upon our world view on how we've learned about these subjects and issues and in a much more structured westernized education format and try to retrofit that to understand that so my question or a comment here really is how do we really kind of capture that invisible knowledge without having without making them learn english without making them go to a formal education because they are the sources of tremendous knowledge about ecology forestation and full blown sustainability like there's nothing in their lifestyle that is a waste or wasted they're talking about circular economy they live circular lives um that was our understanding so i'm just really curious marcus and given yeah. your intrinsic understanding in this field and it is not the westernized understanding and i'm i constantly keep bringing that up to see there's a non western thought and baseline which is very different than the western baseline and thought no i i uh, i completely i completely agree with you um i had the i had the you know tremendous fortune to spend some time in the amazon with the huni queen um tribe there and um there and to get a glimpse into the vast understanding of their or into their vast understanding of the medicinal properties of the plants that they live with and uh and the kind of you know the 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 kind of dreaming of remedies that somehow happens in some form of nearly spiritual relationship that they live with uh with the plants and have an understanding of the plants and and the medicinal properties of them um was really you know tremendous to see i think also this um uh, what i've referred to earlier right what we now call the lunar calendar and and kind of an understanding of of um the the management of of the reef and its population um i think you know uh, we need to unlearn we need to unlearn and we need to uh um reconnect and start learning again from from this understanding of of the environment to to be able to respond to these uh, to these changes or at least try to start building a sensitivity towards them again right um so so um i don't know how it goes but i think i think exactly these uh, these realizations are are key or are or a beginning of uh, becoming a key right i think um that's that's what it is clearly our way of understanding is um, is a way of understanding it is not the way um and and clearly we're finding ourselves into in a situation right now that um you know is a result of something so uh, we need to imagine these um new ways forward in different ways and radically different ways forward and therefore i think uh, working with artists and through art who have a completely different way of sensing understanding experiencing the world and translating the, these this understanding into experiences for other audiences is um is for me and the the way that uh, we work um uh, tremendously important so it really is about a completely different way of of engaging with understanding sensing the world and then acting upon that 
Anita, thank you for that point. That was that was that was a great question and, and uh, one that I hadn't necessarily thought of for this conversation. So I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, next up on the stage, we have the founder of October. I mean, Octopus Tober. <laughs> I have to say it right. Uh, welcome, Elise, to the stage. You. you have the Thank floor. Thank you, Jeremy and Marcus. I'll move myself to the audience. <laughs> happy World Octopus Thank Day. You. Oh, Thank Susie, you. Oh, Susie, happy World Octopus Day. And thanks, Jeremy, for putting um, this talk together. And Marcus, um, thank you so much for sharing all this. I was really here to listen uh, and learn. But I I think it's fascinating the role that that art and storytelling can have in, in, in affecting change and in really raising awareness so that we can have more impact. But I think what really resonated for me was um, what you mentioned about the intersection of different worlds working together and not kind of splitting up the same pie of funding, but really creating a bigger pie. And I think that's exactly what you know we're we're trying to do is getting groups or funders that don't really necessarily care about certain issues to um, to have exposure to this and to start caring. So thank you. This has been amazing, and Happy World Octopus Day! <laughs> Watch Octopus Teacher if you guys uh, haven't seen it yet. For those that are that are around here, but you've heard my spiel. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, um, beyond the storytelling, beyond um, the, the awareness raising, I think it, it is really we need to practice and exercise and, and create exercises for ourselves to for for care to become a cultural practice. And so it, we need we need to um, turn this around somehow from an intellectual exercise into a cultural practice, a cultural practice of care. And I think um, so whatever, whatever that takes, right. And whatever these, these exercises are, right. Um, I think art, storytelling, music, films, whatever it is, uh, they, they play a key role. It's like, you know, um, we somehow um, we need to find new myths that we can tell ourselves and they have something to do with this crisis and how we engage with this crisis and how we turn um, the, 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 the dealing with the crisis into constant acts of caring for each other and for the environment. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and thanks to Jeremy for, for hyping Octopus Tober. It's not actually a thing yet. <laughs> I, I really work uh, with a foundation and uh, a family office that supports uh, initiatives in in environments and in community, but I'd like Octopus Tober to be a thing. I think we've kind of made it a thing on I on think, Clubhouse. <laughs> I think Elise. I think perception is reality, and the perception is that Octopus Tober is real. Thanks. <laughs> so I love it. It's um it's so real that uh, we've posted uh, an Instagram post today about it. Right. Uh, really. Octopus Day, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's your one right now? What's the Insta handle? uh, TBA Twenty One Academy. Amazing. Okay, I'll go check it out and like it right now. We should do a collab. It's real. (laughs) Well, at least while I have you appear on the stage, you know, Marcus, you've also um, created the Ocean Academy Fund, and I know that we're we've kind of passed an hour, um, um, but I just would love for you to kind of 
chat briefly about that because Elise, is, as she mentioned, she's in impact uh, funding as well. Yeah. Um, and we've been been thinking about you know ways that we can kind of engage and, and help. Um, you know, like last week, we had uh, uh, on on uh, on the Impact Investment Club, which is the uh, Elise's club. We had Dr. Sylvia Earl on, and we were talking about her submarine project and how we need to yeah. help her with that project. Um, you know, could you maybe talk a little bit about what you're doing and 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 maybe what your goals are for it? Well. You know, it's it's like I said before. It's um, this this challenge that we're facing. It's so uh, it's all so all encompassing, and um, I think you know, the ocean is our best ally in facing the climate crisis, uh, which means it's way too big for one organization. It's way too big for uh, you know one funder or two funders or three funders, and therefore. Uh, we created this uh, this donor directed fund, which is called called the Ocean Academy Fund, to um, to uh, create a platform for others to engage, for others to get involved, and and um, if they are fortunate enough and and can get involved uh, financially as well, right, to be able to create these different platforms that uh, that foster collaboration, that foster uh, coalition, that foster alliances and solidarity and thinking and acting and practicing but then also make it make it available and accessible uh, for everybody right so so this um, is one of the fundamental uh, values of everything that we're doing um, the ocean space is free of charge the ocean archive is free um, because I think otherwise you you exclude people from the conversation that need to be um, integral parts of the conversation. Um, you need to be able to invite people and welcome people that um, that uh, would come because it's free. Because uh, you know, if you if you have to think about uh, spending money to get somewhere and you can't afford it, or or it's hard for you to afford, right? You're going to think twice to either see uh, contemporary art or the ocean or hear a lecture about science or have a have uh, an invitation to come and participate in conservation and get your hands dirty in the salt marshes, right? I think um, it needs to be um, accessible to all and an invitation to everybody. And uh, and so therefore, uh, everything that we do, we try to, to keep it free, free of charge. So far, we've succeeded. But this also means that uh, that we need to kind of spread the load as, as, as much as we can. And uh, so at, at some point uh, last year, we created the Ocean Academy Fund to really open it up to, um, to a wide array of, uh, of donors and potential donors. So this is on, uh, on a platform with a Swiss bank called Lombard Odier, and the, the, the platform is the Philanthropia platform. Uh, it has, uh, you know, it has a 501c3 attached to it. And so, so we're, we, we try to go to a partner that makes giving as easy as possible, uh, meaning uh, their tax incentives and, and so on, and uh, and really to open it up to be um, to be as open and democratic and inclusive as possible. That's that's the idea behind it, and and you know we invite everybody to be part of this family. Amazing! Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to look into it further. Thanks. Cool. Well. Um... 
I guess we'll go ahead and, and close up here. If there's anybody that wants to pop up and ask some questions, you're more than welcome to. I, I think the, the final question that I have for you, Marcus, is what can we do to help you? Is there anything, any ask that you have right now, as big or as a small, what could we focus on for you? Um, Jeremy, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think anything. Just get in touch. Be be uh, engaged. Contribute um, with, or no, d don't contribute. Just uh, um, engage and come into a conversation, and then we'll we can see what we can do together. But um, we love to collaborate. Um, and and this is the beginning of a conversation and, and uh, I don't know I don't have a I don't have a specific ask I should probably you should have told me before I would have prepared something better but um, you know there it is well you know it, it's uh, you're on clubhouse now so you're you're practically family well um, it's always an honor to to chat with you as a friend as a, a co-collaborator as just a I mean, just an overall amazing soul. And um, I, I think we've all just really enjoyed hearing you today. And um, and we yeah, really appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's always a pleasure talking to you, I have to say. So there you have it. This is Ridge Tarif, and this is the kind of stuff that we talk about. Now, um, Ridge Tarif, uh, it was recorded on Clubhouse uh, underneath the Ultramarine ocean uh club and uh what's so neat about that is you know for those of you that don't know ultramarine is a group that Susie mai and i started and we did it on necker island uh which is sir richard branson's home and our idea was is just you know could we bring other people to collaborate and say hey you know what we uh we, we want to do the right thing or we, we're an investor where can we put our money or hey I've, i'm an entrepreneur i have this really cool idea uh it's about collaboration and it's about coming together and working together and establishing these really strong ponds and so Susie and I are so incredibly excited to uh, have this next version of uh, which will be our third uh, annual uh, ultramarine uh, session will uh, begin happening on the first week of February so um, you know you might be listening to this podcast thinking I'm an innovator I love the ocean or I'm an impact investor or maybe you just, you know, you want to contribute in some way, let us know. You can actually visit us at ultramarineocean.com. This has been Ridge Tarif, and I'm your host, Jeremy McCain.